0: I was too busy really thinking that I had gone mad. It was like somebody was taking a chisel to my mental health and slowly, you know, sculpting a sick individual out of it. Hello,
1: this is Al Levin, the creator and host of the Depression Files podcast. For over two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site, to the equipment, to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreon.com slash the depression files. That's patreon patreo dot com slash the depression files. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways, and now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm Al Levin, your host. I'm excited today. We have John Ehrenberg on the line. John is an addictions counselor. He has worked in a long-term facility care for over 18 years, and he is a volunteer firefighter, an author, and a very staunch mental health advocate. John, welcome to The Depression Files.
0: Thank you for having me, Al.
1: John, I'm really glad you're on. I know it took us uh, quite a while to get connected, and uh, I appreciate... uh, all you've done to make sure we get connected.
0: Indeed. I, I'm glad to be here finally. I, I do apologize. Um,
1: no apology needed. No apology needed at all. So yeah. I know from reading a bit about you and uh, on your blog and such, you have actually had major depression and anxiety. You describe it essentially as your for your entire life.
0: Hmm. Well, initially, um, I would say that it was lifelong. Of course, when you're when you're just a wee lad, you don't really understand the full raw, you know, ferocity of what you're going through at the time. And uh, so I think, oddly enough, the major depressive thing was the last um, mental illness that I had discovered. And, and uh, it, although it hit me by surprise when I look and evaluate it over the course of my life um, – it ends up that I'm not very surprised.
1: Right. So essentially it's looking in hindsight at different things you went through as a child that make you realize you, that you were actually really struggling at that point as well.
0: That's right. I was a very uh, problematic child, um, in terms of, uh, mo- mainly in school, um, acting out uh, physically aggressive, not necessarily towards people, but, um, um, towards objects and just being loud. And, uh, and, uh, I always kind of kept to myself and I did, I didn't think that was anything big or, or abnormal. I just thought that was the way things went. Right. Um, uh, it was, I just felt that it was, there was some, there was a certain ease about, you know, having as few people around me as possible.
1: And can you give us some examples of the lashing out the physical
0: pieces? Well, I, it's a, it's a long story, but, um, my school years, uh, growing up in the '80s, uh, people didn't really take the time to consider mental illness. Everything was much more punitive then than it is now, in in, in Canada anyway. And as an educator, I don't know if you you uh, you've experienced this or or have heard stories in your day, but uh,
1: oh, I think it definitely. <clears throat> this, I would say the same here as well.
0: Oh, yeah, right. Um, there wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot of uh, behavioral intervention or or. Uh, Anybody really looking to see um, what's what's causal factors that are really causing the behavior? Basically, it's it's an observable behavior. I'm and, just curious uh, the, if
1: you could give some examples. Like you, you even labeled yourself a problem child. Um, sure. Yeah. So, what kind of behaviors were you exhibiting that would make you say that in hindsight?
0: Well, I I would act out, um, get like really loud and screaming and, and smashing things and throwing things. And uh, quite often would be followed up with a visit to the principal's office.
1: Right. And was uh, that, uh, I mean, was this a weekly basis, would you say, that you were getting in trouble in school?
0: It would really depend. I, I, th- I think it uh, it was very frequent, mm-hmm. and indeed it was, that's for sure. But uh, I think it all surrounded around um, the misrepresentation uh, of what was really taking place inside versus what was being observed. Right. Oh, and, absolutely. Absolutely those behaviors are being manifest as a result. Right. Uh, I mean, when you don't have the skill sets to sufficiently deal with what's going on inside you, there's a, you know, how do you, how do you express that as right. a kid in my experience, you know, working with people with high behaviors and things like that, and being a kid myself in this position, a lot of kids I find tend to, uh, the first go to emotion is anger. And I, th- I guess I would be no different.
1: Right. What was home life for you like?
0: Well, it was my mom, my mom and dad were good. It's just, we grew up in a time where, where, uh, the definition of, of raising children well was to more so provide for their physical needs and work hard. Right. And, uh, the emotional aspect of things was, was not as high of a priority as, as putting clothes on the back and food in the the belly. So my dad, uh, worked seven days a week as a contractor. My mother had two or three jobs and and did a lot of work in offices and things like that as a as an office manager. So I think it was just a product of the time too. Right.
1: So, no siblings?
0: Yes, I have a twin sister actually. Okay. And so how did the two
1: have, of you get along?
0: Um we kind of we ha- we had our moments where we erupted, but um we were kind of like people who would just cross paths. Okay. Uh, two fundamentally different people, so um but it was kind of like a you know, when the perfect, two perfect elements came together for a storm, there was usually, there was usually lightning, thunder, right, and lightning. Right. So, but but uh,
1: were the two of you typically in the same elementary school class together?
0: Uh, um, not a lot. It, it worked out in the beginning years anyway that uh, there was generally speaking two of every class. I think they kind of separated us. I don't know if it was just systematic, or they just thought it would be better. I I, I don't know.
1: Right, and then the um, same kind of uh, school issues through middle school and high school. Would you say just kind yeah, of?
0: Uh, well, I have, in middle school, I was is kind of where where my behaviors peaked. It's because I, I became more cognitively aware of what was going on, and one of the things that happened was I was put into a lower lower tier of education because uh, there was a evaluation based on my behaviors that I was. Somehow a slow learner or or deficient in some intellectual capacity, so I ended up in a, a program which was uh, designed for you know easier learning or whatever they they call it a, a general program here at that time okay. so i uh, I never agreed with with that and i and I never had any power control over over what was done at the time you know any real input or right. so uh, that all that did was produce more behavior, really. So my behavior peaked in middle school because I was get, one, I was getting older. Two, I was hitting teenage years, so there was all kinds of chemical processes going on, and uh, so it just we kind of came the perfect storm. I knew that I knew that I was able, more capable to do things than uh, than what, what was being suggested or what was being thrown at me. Right. But I had no control over it.
1: What about so your parents? They must have been notified by the school a lot if you were getting in a bunch of trouble, and how would they react to the troubles you were getting in at school?
0: Well, I was very much held accountable for my behavior at the same time though my mother also was a great advocate for me she's uh she's been an integral part in that, especially in those middle school years. They wanted to send me to a school for uh for a i don't know what i don't know what to call it now, but for lack of intellectually or intellectually disabled individuals or or slow learners, they called them at the time. I apologize for the language, but but my mom fought tooth and nail because she felt like there was something else going on there. So, right. Um, I think that would have only made things worse for me. So, yeah, if it wasn't for her being very vocal, both holding me accountable when I needed to be, and in the school accountable when they needed to be, because uh, I was kind of shoved off in a corner and said, "We're we're too busy dealing with the kids that matter. We'll uh, we'll get to you." You know. Right. So it
1: sounds like a really tough, challenging situation to be in as a middle schooler
0: yeah, it was and uh and of course, you know uh, it's uh, between being the kind of the class clown and the class incredible hulk <laughs> you, um, you know it's not a good uh it's not conducive to friendships very much, so right, right, you know.
1: and you mentioned earlier that you were kind of a loner,
0: yeah, and I think that that unknown depressive. Or anxious elements of myself were were present back in those days.
1: Um, no, uh, no kind of diagnosis, no seeing a therapist or anything at all through your uh, elementary and middle school days, high school days.
0: Well, one of the things that did bring me around was that my parents did recognize that I needed some sort of intervention and and therapy. So I did see. I think I was around the order of ten or twelve or. Yeah, that I did see a a social worker who was specialized in helping kids with this kind of behavior. And, uh, he was a wonderful man. And, uh, I, he was the only person I felt really safer or or able to open up with. So,
1: so you um, could open up with him and and be honest,
0: right? It was the only safe spot I had. And I'm not, not, not that my parents weren't, uh, not good folk. It was just with the working element all the time. And, and, uh, you know those kind of things. It was just tough for anybody to want to listen, really, or have so, the time to.
1: So, how long did you see the counselor for?
0: I can't remember now, but I would say it was probably two years or so.
1: Okay, and, decent uh, amount of time.
0: Yeah, I credit that actually that that period of my life um, with actually um, kind of saving it to a large degree.
1: Right. So, did you it see gave- him throughout high school as well then?
0: No. I, I uh, interestingly enough, when I hit by the time I hit high school. I had a few issues with with a couple of the kids, and, and I straightened that around uh, fairly quickly. And uh, I was still in a lower tier learning program, but I I always had uh, had this notion that I was going to do something to change that at some point. But uh, so once I got the initial settling straight away, and uh, I I just put my head down and I uh, I worked and uh i found that um i had to take some a l- little bit of responsibility for myself in the new environment and as you get into high school you're not how do i say it? you're not um the teachers give you more independence and it's more of your responsibility to finish your homework and and they leave you alone and they don't pick on you so
2: right right
0: <laughs> I, I did have some teachers in my elementary years that were saw what they saw had made up their mind what they saw and were were very much uh, problematic as a result so right. when i got to west kings there was none of that right
1: so high there, school it sounds like high school was much different you kind of turned things around and, and started studying hard knowing that you mm-hmm. had to make a difference on your own
0: yeah that's right and uh i consequently it threw up my whole entire life um, like my math teacher at the time I, if i had raised my hands for a question, she'd be like uh, you, i can't help you i can't be bothered with you you know leave me alone you're not you're not going to do anything anyway <laughs> all these kind of statements but so wow. it was refreshing it was refreshing when i got to school yeah or high school right. and uh, i'd always kind of been told that i would never amount to anything right
1: oh my so, god that's awful
0: <laughs> it is awful and here, you know you're fighting these these inner demons that you don't understand right and uh, all you're doing essentially is crying for help
1: right oh exactly and like you said it's it's this inner turmoil that is manifesting itself with your behaviors and that's all they're seeing. And it was a different time, right? I hope most educators these days understand that kids are acting out because something's going on and we got right. to dig deep and figure, help them
0: figure it out. From, from my own experience, my own kids, they seem to be much more on top of uh, dealing with behavior yeah. issues.
2: I, and, I think uh,
0: so. Some of them are better at it than others. Some of them cause the problems, but, uh,
1: yeah, yeah, I,
0: unfortunately I, I went through that because I, I can, I was an, I was able to be an advocate for my kids and right. still, are. so it, it, I mean, it's paid off in the long run.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you but, saw a counselor, but you didn't have any kind of diagnosis, did you at the time of through high school?
0: No, no, I didn't, but I, I shift gears. What I did was I stopped being so angry about things and, uh, and it just manifested into, I spent a lot of time home by myself. I had few friends and, uh. And uh, I always preferred my own company. I just thought that was normal. But right. looking back now, uh, and I, the anxiety disorder too, I, I, I really just, I couldn't deal with that. Like going out partying wasn't a huge thing for me initially. Uh, not until I got in the fire department. Anyway. <laughs> just gonna just, that's funny. But.
1: It sounds like you credit the change of, you know, less anger, harder working, mostly to the, the counselor. Do you think some of it, there were other reasons that you were able to turn it around in high school?
0: I, I think, I think the change in environment. And I also think that, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure, um, what the particular skill sets were that I, that I, you know, came out of that situation cause it was years ago. Right. But I think, I think the guy was so good at what he did is that he gave me a, a longer lasting hope or a, um, a springboard to jump off and, and to try to you know, maybe he was good at, uh, let me see my worth, which I essentially felt worthless. So yeah, uh, um, that was a catalyst for me, I think.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And you know, you also mentioned the hormones and things that come along with middle school, right? So it may Mm -hmm. have also been a level of maturity that you were gaining too, possibly, but that's, that's fantastic. What happens after high school for you then?
0: Well, um, as a, as a caveat, just before I went out of high school, I went back to high school to get my academic. Okay. Uh, of course, I got told by the vice principal that I, w- I wouldn't be able to do that because uh, I wasn't smart enough. Because uh, I wanted to be a paramedic at the time. And uh, so I went to the guidance counselor, and he told me that I couldn't do that because I needed a grade 12 academic. Okay. Um, so <laughs> so uh, these things were kind of defeating. but.
1: Uh, so you left high school before you had finished? Is that what
0: you're saying? No, I graduated with, in, with the general program with top marks because I uh, I didn't really need to be there, really. And I didn't, I wasn't there, and I still walked away with medals for top class. Right. <laughs> it's so, just why, you know, I wasn't, mean, you know.
1: So this might be a difference between the U.S. and Canada when you say you went back for your academic.
0: Right. It's an upgrade, yeah. So it was
1: I, more schooling that you would have needed in high school?
0: Right. It would have gave me the opportunity to go to university, for example, or, okay. you know, this was just basically, you know, I don't, I don't even know what the, what it, what it granted me in terms of a, a future education. But
1: Okay. Gotcha. Um, so you were looking at going back for more schooling, uh, another couple of years or so?
0: No, just one year uh, ac- academic okay. uh, to get, 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 the courses I needed gotcha. uh, to, to, to get into community college. Right. But after that, I, I joined the fire department when I was still in high school because it's volunteer. Okay. And you were a junior up till you were nineteen. A junior was just somebody that came in. It was a program that tried to entice people into the fire service. Right. It's a recruitment program. Okay. I did that, and uh, when I turned nineteen, um, was when I got into the fire department. So, and that's essentially where where the adult life came crashing in, <laughs> you know, crashing into my childhood, or the one they kind of combined it together to. Uh, that's a hard, a hard intersection for me to talk about. So let me back up. When when I hit 19, you have a preconceived notion of what you're going to do when you're an emergency, before you're an emergency service worker, and you have the desire to do it, right? So you have that hero, hero vision, right? Well you're going to run into a burning building, you're going to save kitties and people, and everything's going to be great. But um, when I turned 19 and was able to be a full active member, the reality was quite something else.
1: In what way? Say more about that.
0: <laughs> okay, so. When you're fully active trained and active, you're able to participate on all incidents so um, it wasn't very long after I turned nineteen that I had seen my first fatality in it. it was it was in a class of really really bad um, they don't get much worse than that really so
1: this was like a s- car accident type of situation
0: no it was uh, it was like in a, a September evening uh, around six o'clock. Oh, We got a call to uh, a, a mini barn on fire. And subsequently, the uh, gentleman inside was, well, he was uh, using his barbecue on the inside and uh, something happened and it blew up. So, wow, the gentleman uh, expired as a result.
1: Right. And, and this uh, is uh, while you were 19 and you had to see that scene.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was one of the first ones to respond and one of the last to leave. And it was a Sunday evening. And people were coming back from church. I think at the time, his family and I mean, they were falling on their knees in the yard and wow. and all that. So, and uh, I mean, to top it all off, it was the chief's brother in law. So, the wow. whole thing was just so was so traumatic and so problematic. Um, almost everything you could possibly throw at you, right?
1: Yeah, right. And this was age nineteen. You you hadn't even been in the a volunteer for a year with the firefighter. No.
0: Not as a full time, no. Wow. I ha- and I had very little life experience to go with it, you know.
1: Right. So, do you still remember like how that impacted you immediately following? Like, could you describe the following few days? Was there a significant impact on you?
0: Yeah, there there definitely was, um, and uh, it's one of the key examples I use now to cite sort of that accumulative factor that has gotten me to this diagnosis of PTSD. So the next couple of days after I was, I was, I was having nightmares and, uh, was pretty numb and dis, disassociated, you know, all those, all those factors that you get when you have a critical incident. So I did get some critical incident stress debriefing, which helped a little, but what really exacerbates things is everyone's different. And, uh, I, uh, I didn't, the band aid didn't stick, you know? Right. And so beyond that, that uh, debriefing there was nothing and, uh, and what do you mean
1: for, by a debriefing like one day for an hour or something
0: yeah within 72 hours you're supposed to have a debrief and basically you, you sit around everybody that was involved in the incident gets to sit around and talk about the, the thing with a, with a, a trained uh, critical incident stress debrief individual okay. and uh, it, it does help and, and a lot of most people end up going after a week or so end up, uh, end up being okay or a lot of people do
1: but it is just one time with the group of folks for an hour or two hours, however long it lasts.
0: Right? Yeah, I'm not, not sure now how long. It, I'm sure it's more than an hour. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But beyond that, just that, seems,
1: that, that just seems so minimal with such an extreme situation. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm I'm glad you're saying you felt like it helped, but man, yeah, like I can't can't imagine what you were going through then. So you mentioned some symptoms you had and you mentioned dissociating. And I think that's one that some of the listeners may not have a full grasp on. Can you share what you mean when you dissociated?
0: Well, I still do that quite often today, actually, but well, you just, you know how you, there's when you walk around in your everyday world, there's this sort of you're present, you know, and, and you feel like you're uh, with disassociation. There's uh, you feel like you're um not a part of the world, um, you know what I mean
1: yeah I, I, or can you say um, more about it
0: yep, yeah, so for example, uh some people, when they go to incidents, for example they'll or when they think about them, they'll feel like they're over and above themselves okay, like like they're not in the incident, but they're observing it right, and that's kind of a dissociative aspect <clears throat> for myself, sometimes the world feels bigger or smaller or. It's hard to explain, really, but it it really robs you of your focus. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. Yeah. Did the did the nightmares eventually subside, and some of your other symptoms?
0: Yeah, yeah, they 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 did. I, I it, it's interesting because when you talk to other folks in the fire service, and in my experience anyway, they they all when you ask them what, where their PTSD came from, they're like, I don't know, because in the DSM diagnostic and statistics manual for mental disorders it says that you it's usually one incident but it's it's for for people that i talk to it's it's more like an accumulation and they can't a lot of times they can't tell you what what incident precipitated it right so in other words um it's i call it in one of my blogs i call it the carbon monoxide of mental illness right right? because uh, carbon monoxide is odorless, tasteless and you don't know what's coming but it can make you very sick or kill you
2: Right, right, right.
0: And uh, fire service PTSD or emergency service PTSD is kind of the same. I mean, it, you go to one incident, you you shove it down because they tell you to be a man, and that's not how we deal with things. You know, we don't talk about them. And uh, so th- that's, that's just one wrong on the ladder of of your way to mental illness, right?
1: Yeah. I did have a firefighter on this show on the depression files and mm-hmm. it was that type of description. There wasn't one time where he could say, this is what happened. And this is what gave me PTSD. Cause he too had diagnosed PTSD, but he said he, he knew there was a problem when one day he wanted to unfold a card table and, and play cards in the midst of a fire. Or another time when he went home after a real fire and he didn't share with his wife and kids like, I was a real firefighter today. You know, it was just like mm-hmm. numbing.
0: Right. Yeah. You're just kind of like a you're just kind of like on autopilot. Yeah.
1: But it sounds yeah. like for you, you can clearly indicate this particular scene as the main factor of your PTSD, would you say? Or was yours accumulated also? Because I know you put 15 years in as a volunteer firefighter.
0: Well, I think it's I think it's the first I think it's the first punch in the guts, you know, right? Or or the, the first whiff of carbon monoxide or, yeah. or at a tolerable level, and then then there's a number of other incidents that that precipitated it. And actually, what really the straw that broke the camel's back? I wasn't in the fire service at all. That that only happened a couple of years ago.
1: So, with the the firefighting, was there a time at 19 after you saw that scene and? You're having nightmares and and knowing that you're really struggling. Was there a time where you said like, "I can't do this anymore. I shouldn't be doing this anymore"?
0: I was too busy really thinking that I had gone mad. I didn't. I didn't really think that was. I didn't even think that of a thing really at the time. Right. Um, I think. I think at two, I was young and and my love for the fire service was propelling me, you know?
1: Yep. I could see that a lot of the men who are in firefighting and women too are so dedicated and it's been their life's passion that they're not Mm going to let one scene like that. Stop them from doing the work they love.
0: Right. And, and for myself where I was told all my life that I was never going to amount to anything, right. um, Doing, doing this was amounting to something.
1: Absolutely. Really rewarding. I'm sure.
0: Yeah. It really meant a lot to me and it was really, uh, I mean, it was no cakewalk in a lot of ways, don't get me wrong, but um, I learned a lot from it. And actually, my battle with mental illness, uh, or any other battle in life, the philosophy comes directly from the fire service. So. Right,
1: right. Well, and I wonder, too, if, at, especially at 19, or many young firemen, firefighters, I wonder if they even understand, like, the lasting impacts and effect that a scene like that could have on you for the rest of your life if you don't deal with it properly?
0: Well, we're certainly, you certainly get the information leaflets once in a while, you know, right. or, or, the, or the URL to a, to a critical incident stress site or, or a P- PTSD site. And certainly myself, I can't speak for anybody else, but I questioned it a lot mm-hmm. in my service years, but I just kind of put both hands on it and squish it down to a, a place where I didn't have, where I thought I was dealing with it, <laughs> right. you know, um, right. I'm a, I'm a highly sensitive individual as well. So looking back on, on, on the, on what I had chosen to do, which I, I'll never regret helping people because that's what I still do today. But I think, I think <laughs> if I had, I'd known then what I, what I know now about myself on a deeper level, I wouldn't, I would never have gotten into that. So right. um, I wish people had got had <laughs> It's a double-edged sword because you're young, so you don't really know who you are, but I wish people would would have to do a better evaluation of um, what kind of personality they have before they do things like that.
1: Yeah, well, and it's really tough uh, at such a young age, right, to to have that kind of depth of understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but maybe, you know, I don't know, do you believe that the firefighting organizations themselves could be doing a better job of weeding people out who may be more, more susceptible to things like PTSD. Or, I mean, it, that would be pretty incredible to be able to to figure out, wouldn't it?
0: It would be incredible. But um, I don't think that will come from the volunteer fire service. Right. Um, there's no real professional obligation in terms of in terms of being invested. You know. So I mean, there's certain standards that you have to follow, but other than that, everything's optional. Right. 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 Good so, point. I, I did write the chief not too long ago, actually, last year, because uh, I haven't heard a word from anybody from the department at all. So, uh, in my in my own mind, I go into problem solving mode, and I thought, well, how can I how can I make this different for other people? So, I, I wrote him, and I recommended that they put together or they send at least you know three or four people out to train to uh, recognize the signs that people are having problems. Right, it's a and great suggestion and then um you know they can they can sort of make recommendations around you know who you know getting counseling or or making a standard procedure that you know there's a debriefing process and then following up and they would be able to see who who needed follow up they don't have to be trained therapists but trained enough to say hey look uh, we're going to we're going to fund your uh, your counseling right and did, uh,
1: did you hear back from him
0: yeah, I hear I heard back from him. Um he just simply said to me that uh, you know, uh PTSD is an ever-growing problem in the fire service and and uh, we're basically waiting for the government to act. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, that didn't that didn't work out the way I'd hoped, but yeah. but I, I think that's um there are programs similar to that. My uh my my brother-in-law in in Ontario is a paramedic for 30 years. They have a peer program for PTSD. Nice. It's uh totally separate from their management and uh and uh, so it, it entices uh, uh, people who are having problems around certain incidents, or, or even worse, to, uh, to talk to one
2: another. Right. Oh, that's awesome. So,
0: so as as time goes on, there's more recognition for it, and there's definitely more, more things being done to mitigate its harm.
1: Well, I think there are more people. It seems to me that there are more people speaking out about it, like you. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know right here in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, St. Paul, there's a firefighter who's a huge mental health advocate speaking out about PTSD in the firefighting world of firefighters and such. And I just Mm -hmm. think there's more people talking about it. They're seeing a lot of the mental health leaves of absences. There's a lot of impact on the fire departments and the police departments. Right. All these emergency organizations and. I think they're finally realizing like we have to take this on. We can't just bury bury it or ask others to bury it or expect them to anymore.
0: That's right. It's 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 probably an epidemic right now, I would say. Right. Right. Um, and probably the biggest one in terms of uh emergency service. Yeah. And and uh in military service. Right. Uh, you Absolutely. know, one thing we have to remember about PTSD. I mean, you could you could be assaulted once, and and uh, and that, that would be it. Mm-hmm. Now, another person can take can take multiple assaults or or see multiple deaths, and it doesn't bother them. Right. Right. So uh, you have uh, there has to be some compassion around around the fact that well that was only that o- this only happened to you, so you know get out of my office. Versus yeah. well, I can understand you saw somebody burned to death, so right. For a while, yes.
1: Um, so that that's a like I give a real simplistic example of that when I talk about that, and mm-hmm. I'll just share with people that you know even for a kid, two parents getting divorced, one kid it could be devastating and crushes world, another one might be like, thank goodness, like all they do is fight like this is yeah, a really good yeah. thing right yeah
0: that's so right so
1: a divorce could alone could really impact people differently and i hear that's what you're saying too right like some people have this type of resiliency whatever it may be inside them to be able to go to war to be able to see death in the face and and be okay with it in a way with mm-hmm. without suffering major ptsd symptoms and another one it might be they saw one person get killed and and that's all it took for them
0: right yeah. You know, you're, you're, well, when I was a kid, they'd tell you to be quiet or, you know, you stop being a baby or whatever, right? Right. Uh, and then, you know, the fire service, the grown up version of that is, oh, well, we just keep ourselves busy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, Yeah. so. Um, Pick and, your chin uh, up. Yeah, that's right. You know, the next call's coming.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> you know, right. and it, when you think about it, on, you know, stepping back and looking at it, I think, you know that's kind of humorous in a way—not not not the incident itself, but the way it's looked at. You know, like yeah, you you get what I mean, like
1: yeah, absolutely. The way it's just uh, scoffed at, just,
0: essentially, yeah, dismissed. It's just right. like oh my god, right? Yeah, like and then and then those those who die by suicide, people are like, well, I didn't see that coming, right? You know? right. It's because you kept telling the guy to shut up, you know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and I want to reiterate the point you made, really, because I don't want to discount that, which is that. We need to understand that it could be one incident and something that may not seem so significant to us that could create PTSD for somebody else. And we shouldn't be scoffing at it or dismissing them um, because right. it really may have impacted them that way and, and probably
0: did. Well, I, I'm fortunate too because uh, of my counseling background and working in long term care uh, with people with uh, extreme behavioral problems and, and mental illness and, and uh, mental challenge. I come to co- to believe in a phrase its behavior always happens for a reason. Right. And it's it, sometimes that's misinterpreted as the obse- observable uh behavior is the reason but that's not really a reason. Yeah. So to be observant is key, right? Yeah. So in other words when you're working with uh, people with autism, some people with autism are very are very acute to their environment around them. When something changes, right? They their behavior goes up exponentially and once you find out what that little minute problem is and if you fix it the behavior stops
2: yeah but so that, that
0: behavior happened for a reason and I can tell you a story about uh I did that with one with one resident uh, they were very behavioral and I knowing this previous to my experience I started looking around for anything that was out of, out of sorts and I'd come to discover that the bed the bed was an electric hospital bed and it was up in the air a little bit. Once I pressed the button and it was fully to the ground, they went to bed and I didn't see them again.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Now how to, how does this translate into what we're talking about? It's, uh, um, um, things affect people in different ways and, uh, you can be wired differently, for example, yeah, uh, neurologically, as you suggest with the parent example. Right. So, so, I mean, that behavior always happens for a reason and you can't just assume that but he's out smashing the window at his car after a fire call because because he's, he's you know, just being a jerk. Right. Um, I think it's incumbent on us to, to dig a little deeper than that.
1: For sure. Absolutely. You know. So you touched on it a bit, but you did also work in a long-term care facility for 18 years, right?
0: Mm-hmm. That's right.
1: And uh, that was working with what types of residents?
0: People with severe behavioral problems and... Uh, and mental challenge and, uh, and, uh, mental illness.
1: And what was your role in the facility?
0: Uh, it was a front, care, a front care staff, frontline staff member, which is basically what they would call a residential rehabilitation worker. But that's just a fancy word for, for like, a you know, uh, frontline staff. You know, you care for the clients, you help them with their care, you help them with their breakfast, you get them to their programs, you help them get to bed.
1: And did you work in the same facility for the 18 years? I did. Wow. And what was that like? Were there individual rooms that people lived in and then there were communal spaces?
0: Well, there was, there was like four to a room and then there was like a day room and an office, like a nursing station, and then like uh, just a long hallway with a little bit of a sort of a mini miniature day room and then, you know, the exit and a lock, lock facility for people who were being violent.
1: Okay, and four to a room. Were the rooms more like a hospital room, or were they more like a dormitory or hotel room? Not luxury,
0: obviously. It was very, very much a hospital setting. Okay, like um, we had nurses, but you know, like you might imagine going into a room, and the only difference was you didn't have the privacy curtains, which I never understood. But
1: did they? So so they lived there, though. and This was their permanent
0: residence. That's right. So okay basically anybody who, who presented with major behavioral difficulties. Uh, my facility in uh, Nova Scotia was, was the place they went.
1: Wow. And four to a room. Did you just see many outbursts and physical incidents on a regular basis? I'm, I'm guess I'm making that assumption.
0: Yes, absolutely. Not only to the clients themselves, but also towards staff and myself on a number of occasions. Um, it was a regular thing. It was a, uh, one of the most uh, problematic things for me was the noise, you know, um, people, um, nonverbal individuals who are very behavioral, um, are very vocal too. So they, you know, but their vocals are really loud.
1: Right. And how um, many, so, how many residents in this facility?
0: Um, uh, I think there's somewhere around the uh, neighborhood of 200 and I worked on the, I worked on the heavy, heavy behavior floor, which there was, when I started working there, there was eighteen of them, and then. Oh my
1: goodness, how well, old were you when you started there?
0: Uh, Twenty-two,
1: I think. So you were still doing the volunteer firefighting, mm-hmm. and you were working in this pretty—I think it's safe to say—highly volatile facility.
0: Right. Oh yeah. my goodness. Right. Yeah, uh, they would assault each other quite regularly, and wow—you know, you'd, you'd you'd have to restrain them and all those kind of things too. So. It was traumatic for them, traumatic for us.
1: and, um, and what some, would the restraining look like? It would be I would imagine two staff members on a per, to a person and strapping them to a bed essentially.
0: It, it depends on well, on the behaviors they were presenting. Some um, with adrenaline flow, um, people can be quite strong, right? right. So um, some people had customized restraint plans um, because they were so problematic when they were when they were peaking with with that kind of behavior. Um, usually though, on average, we'll say it was, it was two people that would escort them down or you would call what was called the code and you would have other guys show up uh-huh. and, uh, usually that was enough to, you know, steer them in the direction you wanted them to go.
1: And when you say escort them down, down to
0: where? Sometimes you had to seclude them and lock them up. Right.
1: Okay. Okay. Wow. And so at this time, tell us about your own mental health. I mean, you, you definitely, you already shared with us some significant PTSD. You mentioned that just growing up, you know, you had major depression and anxiety. So working Mm -hmm. in these two places at the same time, what's going on with your mental health uh, as you start both of these gigs?
0: Well, it was, um, it was like somebody was taking a chisel to my mental health and slowly, you know, sculpting, uh, sculpting a sick individual out of it.
1: Right. Um, And, And had you ever gotten any, help at this point had you been seeing a therapist or anything
0: not at the time i worked on the major behavioral floor okay but definitely by the end of that i was i was definitely very symptomatic of of what what is now a generalized anxiety for sure uh-huh. um i mean my eyeballs were twitching <laughs> you know well and who, I, I,
1: I don't understand like anybody walking around working on that floor i would imagine would have some anxiety like you you must always be looking over your shoulder and wondering who's yeah. around and Who's going to do what next?
0: Right. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah, it's like wow. walking into, it's like walking into the badlands every day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and sometimes, you know, I could be able to a fire for 12 hours and then go to work for eight or oh, 12 like, hours. Yeah. Right. It hope being a young buck.
1: When did you, you do have a formal diagnosis, correct?
0: I do I do have I do have PTSD a uh, major depressive disorder and uh, anxiety and generalized anxiety disorder.
1: So when when was your first time to go to a therapist and when was your first time you were diagnosed?
0: Well, I had I had, had enough of the behavioral floor and went to another one. After, and uh, after I just How many years? 8. Oh my goodness. Right. You must have been and, uh, the longest
1: standing employee of eight years there.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, my former director says I was one of her best. So <laughs> I, I was flattered, but <laughs> it came at a cost. So when, when I moved to another unit, which was, was very similar, but was much more mild, um, like they had better programs and they weren't, the doors weren't locked and, you know, but there were, there were behavioral difficulties. But so after a time, I mean, uh, I was a, I was a young young guy with kids and, 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 and marriage and all that. So that that personal life was, was not conducive to <laughs> the, these social constructs of what, what we're all supposed to do in life, you know, grow up, get married, right. have kids, and everything's going to be beautiful. Um, ended up also being quite perilous for me, but I think it was everything in, in, if you added it all up. But So with all that going on, I ended up, after a while, being a, uh, almost intolerant to the environment. What and, do you uh, mean
1: when you say intolerant to it?
0: Well, for example, I would go after everybody left for their day program, I would sneak off into, into the, into their, that bathroom and pretend to clean it or something because it was quiet and no one ever went in there.
1: Right.
0: Uh, I just couldn't handle it. Couldn't deal with it. Right. So you're just
1: trying you just know, try to escape.
0: Well, right. And, uh, it was super quiet in there and, uh, a recurring theme for me when I look back is, is uh, I do best, uh, in quiet. Right. You know, like uh, when I was growing up, I was mostly quiet. Uh, when I went to, when I took my addictions counseling, uh, I lived in an apartment by myself, and I was my mental health was stellar. Right. Um. I was doing something that I loved. I finally had control over my life. You know. Yeah. I, in other words, I was doing something that I really wanted to do. Right. And and I loved it. Um. But as soon as I ended up in that building, it was in in the fire service, and you know the social construct, all those things. So the it all culminated into one evening when I was trying to deal with a, uh, an individual who was upset, and uh, some staff members, um, and maybe you see this in your own workplace. I'm not sure. Take it upon themselves to to help you out because they legitimately feel they they know better than okay. you, right? <laughs> and uh, and uh, so anyway, this person came in to intervene. I don't know why, but I was distracted, and as soon as I was distracted, I was hit in the face by this client, punched okay. right in the face. Oh. So <laughs> I went down to the nurse's station and I had keys in my pocket and I threw them on the counter. Said, Have a good night. <laughs> and I walked out and I went down to the the supervisor station. I I just I just told him I said I don't care if you pay me, you know, put me off sick, fire me, I don't care. I'm I'm out of here. And uh and I and I didn't even wait for the reaction. I just left. Wow. So um
1: and that was truly your last day.
0: No, it wasn't my last day actually. <laughs> okay. it was it, in my head, right. in my mind, and I, in my heart, I knew I, I, I shouldn't go back. Right At that time, that was years ago, right. I knew I shouldn't go back. Subsequently, though, a couple of days later, my director, who I mentioned earlier, called me. And all she said on the phone was, come see me, and hung up the phone. <laughs> wow. So, you know, when somebody uh, delivers a message like that over phone, you know, you feel ob- automatically obligated to go. Absolutely. And I had a lot of respect. She's a wonderful lady, so I went in and talked to her, and I thought, of course, everything when you have an anxiety disorder is a disaster, right? Right. So I'm thinking, even though I'm quit, they're going to fire me. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, you know how your mind. Well, I don't know if you have anxiety, but that's how your mind works, right?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, it does that with depression too, right? You just spiral down, and everything becomes negative, and you turn everything into a negative, and oh yeah, yeah. so you're fearing the worst, like you're going to get oh, yeah. reprimanded for quitting, and. And we're not letting you quit. We're going to fire you.
0: Yeah, that's right. And all that kind of stuff. So right. it was a huge fear. And then, uh, I went in there and there was a union rep sitting in the chair and, and uh, I sat down and we, and she asked me to explain what happened. And I, and I did. And, uh, then I just kind of, everything fell out, right? Like what was going on at home, you know, uh, things I'd seen in the fire department and, uh, all, everything fell on her lap and, uh, and, uh, it struck an emotional chord with her. And she just said, you know what? Don't don't quit. Take all the time you need and call me if you need anything. Wow. So that's awesome. Yes. Yes. And uh, I after after that, I, I kind of got a whole after it was all over with. I just kind of said, you know, and she retired. I, I messaged her one day and said, you're the reason I'm still alive today. And I'll always remember that. Nice. That's awesome. Because I was well, I was I was heading down the road of, of no return.
1: Right. So you did take a leave of absence, essentially, then I did and for how long and, and how did you occupy that time?
0: Well, I think it was for the best part of a year and I occupied it by, um, exiting out of my relationship. (laughs) And, uh, well, I can't remember, I told you earlier that the fire service had kind of laid, laid out a doctrine for me, Okay. uh, which is when you're a firefighter, you have to do whatever it takes to, to solve the problem. Right. Right. If you're at the door of a house fire, you can't, run away right. right there's nobody else there yep. so you have to care business so i i use that skill set uh, you know it's transferable all, all across my life and uh so i asked myself what do i have to do to, to get better and i knew i knew that if i was to get better i had to make some pretty harsh decisions
1: right some of which were for example
0: well i got i got out of my relationship because i it was a significant contributor to my uh, mental demise.
1: Was that somebody you were married to, and did, yeah, and I yeah. mentioned kids too, right?
0: Right. Okay. And they were little, right? So I was dealing with, I was dealing with uh, essentially loud individuals who needed care, who, who you know were intellectually uh, impaired, and 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 it was a lot like having little children. Sometimes I work seven days a week. Right. So Um, coming home to their noise and a lot of those similarities, it, it, I, you know,
1: Oh, it must've been so hard. And, and your wife, I'm guessing may not have really understood exactly what you were going through.
0: No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, and how does, how does one really understand that stuff? Right. Right.
1: That's why I made that assumption too. Like how could somebody understand that?
0: Right. And one of the, one of the tipping points that kind of changed everything was a fire service call actually, where her relative was killed in a car accident, and I was there to help extricate. Oh my goodness! And that that um, that was interesting in a way that um, I saw both sides of things, right? Mm-hmm. So after I got home and settled in around one a.m., the and then the phone rang, her, I guess probably around two, and then uh, just, she didn't even have to tell me; I knew what it was, just by her hysterics, right? Right. So and then after that, she had expired. And, uh, her father had grabbed me by the ankle and asked me why I hadn't, wasn't able to do more and, oh, and, uh, I think all of these things kind of culminated to, uh, say that I am in, I, I knew enough to say I'm in bad shape and I need to make some drastic changes. Right. And, uh, and I knew, I knew, um, I guess I credit my, my education and experience to know that what was best for the kids was probably that I did it when they were young. Right too. But I mean, there was, it really came down to do or die. Right. Mm, yeah. So, um, I just, I wanted to live and and I, I wanted the kids to have that father that, that they, they needed. Right. Right. Yeah. So for me, it became easier as I looked at it and those from that context.
1: Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense, right? They need a father who is mentally <clears throat> healthy to support them properly, That's and right. to love them properly. Not a dad who's in the house physically, but mentally just, you know, chaos.
0: Yeah. You know, um, irritable and, you know, right. So all those, all those early symptoms of PTSD were there mm-hmm. and the uh, simple, sim- uh, simply didn't uh, lend to a very positive environment on my end either. So,
1: right. So you um, left uh, your wife and, and what other steps did you take? Is this a time where you finally decided to see a therapist?
0: Yeah. I, um, I had initiated contact through our, our employee assistance program. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Right. Okay. So yep. I initiated uh, counseling sessions with, with a lady. Uh, I shouldn't say lady, maybe, but uh, with a therapist who, um, who helped me out a lot. Um, I don't remember her name. And at that time I was so, in so much duress. I don't, I don't remember a lot.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I couldn't even really explain to you in detail what happened.
1: Right. But you started and, seeing her maybe weekly.
0: Yeah, weekly, I think. Uh huh. Yeah. And, and did course, she give sol- you
1: a diagnosis, or you still hadn't had one yet?
0: No, oddly enough, well, when I went, one of the things I had to do, which was, well was suggested by my director because she was a nurse, that I that I seek help through uh, psychiatry as well. Okay. For medication, so right. I, I took her up on that, and I went to my doctor and got a referral because in Nova Scotia, if you do that, you'll get get in quicker. Okay. It's a public system, right? So it's a little bit more backlog than some systems, but right. it's still a much better system that way. So what I, well, I eventually got in to see a psychiatrist and uh, he diagnosed me with the generalized anxiety disorder, but nothing else. Okay. So, and we medicated accordingly, you know, um, so nothing seemed to work for me, pharmaceutically speaking, but uh, um, I, I, I decided that I would look into other options. And one of the things that kept coming up through uh, research was exercise, the benefits of exercise to anxiety. So that's when I really started a, a healthier lifestyle too. Okay. And that was kind of the, the, the emphasis, uh, emphasis where everything started to uh, turn around. And right. uh, so um, I was able to go back to work uh, probably, I, I would say eight months in.
1: Okay. And did you take eight months uh, off from volunteering with the firefighting too?
0: well yeah i I should mention that actually when my son was born i took i took five years off the fire service okay uh because uh because i wanted to spend time with them because i knew that my job was pretty hefty right 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 and uh there was a sort of relief about it that uh that came over me when i when i kind of got out at that time so yeah um i knew that uh that it was the right decision and, uh, I don't regret it, but after he was five, I, I, you know, it gets in your blood. So I went back.
1: But. Right. So, so you see a therapist, you started some meds for anxiety, you got diagnosed with anxiety. And then after eight months you start back at the long-term care facility. I did.
0: huh. And, uh, my director was like, choose any unit you want. Wow. Right. So, Cause there was, there was a variety of, there's a variety of different units there some one's a geriatrics, one's a you know they're all a little, little bit different, so yeah. some, i went to a um a unit that was all heavy care at the time, like what I mean by that is like uh, people who needed who were wheelchair users who needed one hundred percent help through their day
1: probably a less volatile group
0: oh yeah they 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 couldn't they couldn't even talk the majority of them so right. it was all it was all care okay. And I I really enjoyed that because it was wasn't chaotic, right? You know, the chaos in the in respect of what I was what I was used to dealing with, right? And I I loved it because those those little fellows needed so much care and and uh, I felt like I was making a difference in their lives.
1: Yeah, and so take us to a point where you finally get diagnosed with these other other diagnoses.
0: Well, I went off work a couple other times, uh, uh, and uh, because you know it's not really effectively treated well, and uh, so in two thousand September of two thousand eighteen, what really put my life on hold in a professional sense was um, after I I had got out of the fire department in fifteen, I think, and uh, as a veteran, so. And the reason why that was, because I, I knew was I knew I was done, right? You know, you, you know, I, I wasn't too far away from being poisoned to the point where I was was post traumatic. So
2: right.
0: I realized that, and I said that was enough. And uh, and anyway, we had Thanksgiving that year of uh, seventeen, I think, we went to uh, my aunt's for Thanksgiving dinner. Thanksgivings in October here in Canada, and uh, we. Uh, we got there and everybody was there. I had my kids with me at the time and, you know, had seen some family that I hadn't seen for a while. And my dad comes into the house and he says, there's an old fellow who's dead on the doorstep. Now this place is a, is an old farmhouse, but it was converted into apartments. Okay. And, And my aunt had the back apartment and there was a veranda front and my old fire service emergency emergency, um, you know, training kicked in and I jumped out of my chair and went out and I did see a gentleman laying there, um, laying on the banister, but I could just see his head and he was clearly jaundiced. So when I got up there to, to render assistance, um, the man had long since expired, but, uh, much to my surprise and, and, uh, and the very incidents were incident where my life changed was, uh, when I had tried to man- maneuver him to put him down on the ground to perform CPR, I learned that he, that he was a very young man, not an old man. Wow. So. Unfortunately, that was the end of my, uh, my ability to, uh, assist that gentleman. Okay. And, uh, my mom, who's always been, been in my corner, she's, she's standing right there and she goes, son, just come down.
2: <laughs> right. and,
0: and, um, I, I feel shame in a sense because, um, because, uh, the, that's not what we do, right? We're, we don't, we're there to help, we that's what we do. And, uh. When you lose that ability, uh, um, it's you're losing a piece of yourself. And uh, that's where it all went from there, all downhill. Right. Um, I was working on the same unit, but it had changed a lot. It was a lot like a paver unit that I had left originally, the one I worked on for eight years. Okay. And because the government cuts back things and, you know, doesn't consider to put these people but anyhow so it ended up being like loud and behavioral and not not to the extent but it was still enough because i was already at my especially after this incident i I was just going to work on autopilot and i was working with a gentleman exclusively who was very loud and violent and uh as uh, as i only lasted probably four months or so into work and i thought you know I, i i there's just no way i can do this anymore so i went to my union and I did everything right. I said, what do I have to do to get out of this place? Cause I'm sick. Right. I think I have PTSD. I know I have generalized anxiety disorder, but I am, I'm done. Like if, if I don't get out of here, right. <laughs> right. So they, they advised me to, to make sure I saw a psychiatrist and, or a psychologist and got a diagnosis, which we already had a diagnosis, but it, it had to be specific to what I thought it was, I guess. Right. So I went and got more help and, uh, and uh, actually, had some problems around being diagnosed because simply because it didn't present like um, a textbook case. You know, I think, like I said before, one incident that throws you over, or you know, there's a couple other criteria that they view as a must. But anyway, I did did explain to the psychiatrist that I was having nightmares from the fellow on the step and and all this. Um, so. Once I got my diagnosis, I, I was in, in Nova Scotia here, there's what's called a non-presumption clause. So in other words, if you're a firefighter or a nurse or something like that, if you have PTSD, you don't have to prove that you got it through the fire service, right. all you need is a diagnosis. So I got when I got the diagnosis, I was on WCB, and I was able to sit down and talk to, um, talk to my bosses, saying, look, this is what's going on, I'm done. And they basically told me to go on long-term and, you know, have a good life. <laughs> right. So, so that's, that's where, where it all fell apart. That's where I ended up where I am now.
1: That was in 2018?
0: Yeah, in September. Yep. Okay.
1: And that and was I'm, where you got the diagnosis eventually of PTSD and major depression?
0: Right. The major depression was diagnosed by the psychiatrist, and the PTSD was done by a psychologist okay. who ran the assessments on me of all the, all the suspected diagnosis I had. Right. So in other words, I was verbally diagnosed by the psychiatrist years ago and verbally diagnosed with major depressive by this psychiatrist. I saw, right. But she, she broke out all the paperwork and, and, and we spent hours and hours and hours and hours on it. And, uh, it came out that, uh, the assessments uh, were unfortunately as I described. So right. I am officially diagnosed. So.
1: All right. And so that, allowed you to have more time on your hands
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and I know there's a lot that you do now that keeps you incredibly busy. I know, uh, you do a bunch of writing, right? I know you do some blogging. I believe you've Mm -hmm. authored a book and you have an upcoming book. Um, Mm -hmm. share with us some of, uh, some about your writing and, and your website as well.
0: Well, it's called the road to mental wellness and, 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 uh, I've never been able to to sit still. Um, that's one of my, um, one of my talents or downfalls you everyone to look at it. But so when I was off, you know, there's a lag period between the time you're just kind of sitting idle and getting the help because sometimes it takes a while. Right. So I thought to myself, I can't, I can't just sit here and and rot because just coming um, off work, I was in a bad, bad way as I described. So I turned to I turned to writing, and I thought, "Hey, a blog." Then <laughs> that's just how it started. So, I, I started writing. I started writing uh, the book originally, actually. But I, as soon as I realized I could do a blog, I got excited about it because I didn't know anything about it. It was something to learn. I love learning. I knew that it was totally distract me because learning something new is, requires a lot of your attention, right? So that's kind of how the road to mental wellness evolved. It, it, it evolved to uh, give me some therapeutic uh, relief while I was waiting for help.
1: Right. So you found and, the writing to be therapeutic.
0: Right. And I thought to myself, I had met so many people who were scared to death to talk about their mental illness. And, uh, I had never been one to, uh, to hide it. But it, you know, once I was diagnosed, I was, you know, not, not that I was bragging about it, but if somebody talked to me about it, I'd gladly do that. So, I, I had people come up to me who had who overheard conversations and say, you know, I don't I, it's so nice to hear that somebody else is going through something and and here's what I'm going through too. So the whole idea of writing the, the blog and the way I did, which was to tell my story, was to come from that point of view. You know, I'll tell my story and if you read it and you get something out of it, you feel better. Right. Right? You yeah. know what I mean?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: So, so it was an attempt to help people, you know, hey, I have that too, or I've gone through this. Right. This guy's this guy's singing my song, you know, and uh, I just wanted to resonate and and not be so so um, clinical tech, clinically technical, you know.
1: Right. What do you remember what your first blog post was about? Was it essentially sharing your story?
0: Yeah, it was a little brief introduction. It was the road to mental wellness uh, um, right off the top. And it just kind of highlighted why I started it. Okay, what, what I was going through, I think, but
1: awesome. And how many uh, posts would you say you have at this point? Mm,
0: let's see. That is a good question. I don't keep track. I would say probably sixty or hundred.
1: Wow, that's yeah. awesome.
0: Yeah, and I've guest blogged for other people, and uh, and uh, I've worked. I've done uh, writing for sick, not weak, and I advocate through our uh, mental health talk here. It's in the local paper.
1: Awesome. And when you say you're writing a book, are you actually using all of your blog posts to create a book, essentially?
0: No, actually, the story that I'm telling you is kind of the book.
1: Okay. Almost you know, a, so, so it's a memoir.
0: It's a memoir of sorts, but what what i was trying to do is trying to, what I'm trying to do with it is, is to um, see how things manifest over time and, and how. Like how maybe if it was handled differently, how much, how better it would have been or, you know, so it's kind of starts when I'm a kid till till now. And uh, a lot of things that we discussed are in there. Right. My vision is when people read it that they'll say, hey, you know what, I was having problems and maybe that's what I had too. And, you know, it's okay that, you know, somebody else went through that. So the whole theme of my writing is to say, you know, here's my story and it's okay and that, you you know, you're going to be all right. Yeah.
1: I think it also is a way that helps people decide they can share that they are hurting and to reach out for help too.
0: Mm-hmm, that's right. That's, yeah. that's the ultimate goal really. Yeah. Um, and I do peer peer counseling sometimes, and a lot of people have gotten a hold of me, you know, and uh, it's amazing how how their story, you know, it's amazing when you tell them that we'll get through it. When you say these words to them, we'll do this together. You're not alone anymore. The tears go up in their eyes. and Yeah quite amazing because you know we don't oftentimes think any deeper than what we're seeing in front of us it's true of when I was in school and it might be true of a relationship that you're in I remember talking to my ex one time say I'm going through things I'm not sure what they are and, and uh but I know they're serious and she goes I, w- I don't even want to pretend to know right. so right you know so yeah. all the stuff that was going on with me was just a was a was an observable presentation to her right you know I was just being difficult yeah that time Right. So that's the whole, my whole goal is to help people get past that, get, get into a deeper.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. So tell us again, the web
0: address. It's the road to com.
1: Okay, great. And is that, that will also be the title of the book?
0: That's the title of the book, yeah. Okay,
1: fantastic. I know yeah. also you are very active with the politics of mental
0: health, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, among other things, and uh, everything like on a social level. But I, I'm part of the, uh, the Canadian New Democratic Party here in Canada, and it's a it's a socially grassroots party that puts forth bills and advocacy for uh, mental health, uh, public health um, funding, and um, uh, and diversity and inclusion, and and all these things. Of course, I joined that party because. I'm able to help out in that capacity where mental health is on the uh, radar for them.
1: Right. Anything in particular right now that you're really pushing for with the mental health piece?
0: Well, um, let's see. Uh, When I went to the convention, I, I, I tried to shape policy along with other people, which we vote on and stuff like that. So I was very active in that area. So basically whenever you create policy in your parody, the idea is to bring that forth in a platform for a campaign Okay. And then, and then you campaign on that. And, uh, it's one of those things that I would bring to the door because, uh, like we said, PTSD is, um, is, is probably an epidemic and people understand PTSD. Like it's not a stretch to say, "Holy, oh, you saw somebody burn to death. That's horrible. Right.
1: Right.
0: We're, whereas depression, I think is sort of a stretch for some people,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, do you
1: yeah. think? Yeah. I, oh, I think you're absolutely right.
0: So and, I try to use that as a catalyst for the whole mental health field. Right.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: And, uh, um, when I, we had a candidate who I advised on and, and uh, um, you know, that kind of thing. Right yeah. now in Canada, mental health costs $50 billion a year. Wow. And and uh, if we've funded it more, like we have a public system here, which is trying to be dismantled to be privatized. But that's another story. Right. But, <laughs> but uh, what, what happens is in Nova Scotia, where I am, um, the World Health Organization recommends that every country or province or state Allocate at least ten percent of their health budget towards mental health. In the province of Nova Scotia, for example, it's around six point four. So, when you factor in the amount of help that's needed in the years that have gone by that hasn't been that that's been cut and slashed and not refund heavily funded, um, we have a crisis on our hands. Right. So there's not enough beds for people, and sometimes suicidal individuals uh, get turned away at the door. Wow. Um, and my my analogy to that is always. If you want to tell them, if I was having a heart attack in the ER, would you send me home? Right. Right? Because, you know, if I don't treat a heart attack, it's going to kill me. Same thing here. I just told you. It's right. Medical yep. I, I try to get people to advocate for themselves. And, and you have to be quite pushy, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Which is something I, uh, for all my faults, I don't mind being.
1: <laughs> right. Well, it sounds right. like incredible yeah. work you're doing. What are you doing right now to maintain your mental health?
0: Well, I um, it's been basically bouncing between the psychiatrist and the uh, psychologist. Okay. And uh, the reason um, I'm still seeing the psychiatrist is I have a, a seizure disorder as well. So the medication that I'm on for that it um, it systematically washes out every all the behavioral medications, the SSRIs and stuff. Okay. So that's very problematic because they actually don't work. So. Right. The uh, long and short of the story is, I'm not really, I'm not really doing well, <laughs> not, as, not as well as I'd hoped. Right. Um, but I, I have committed to seeing friends, and being part of the NDP party gives me a little bit of time, you know, avenue to, to go out and be constructive and intellectually contribute.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. To policy change and stuff. So, yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm curious. Did you have any type of therapy specifically around? your PTSD and I mean you clearly have situations and and things that happened that you can point to and did you ever really uh use any particular type of therapy for dealing with those situations
0: um what we focused on primarily is mindfulness okay which I know there's a whole host of other treatments yeah which is still being primarily used um I, and I find in a smaller environment, so if I'm in, in a restaurant and somebody drops a fork, you know, uh, the startle response is heightened with PTSD, so right. it'll make jump, right? Yeah. But if I'm in an overly stimulated area, there's no way that mindfulness helps. So, and it's so exhausting that I have to, uh, you know, I'm home for days at a time. <laughs> right. You know, so. Um, have
1: you ever considered or heard of EMDR?
0: Yes, and my therapist has actually mentioned it, but hasn't really pursued it a whole lot that i not not at this juncture, though.
1: Yeah, so I know several people who used EMDR, eye movement desensitization, reprocessing, as right, yeah. um, specifically for dealing with trauma, and the people mm-hmm. who I know who have experienced it say it just worked wonders. Like, there were several sessions of it, but they said even after one session that it was it was just phenomenal. So I, I guess I would urge you, you know, to check out some other other uh, ways to to continue your therapy.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, right now, I think the the virus situation kind of uh, minimized. All that I think it'd probably be better to start a new therapy one to one.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: Uh, but uh, yeah. but yeah, I've I've been actually kind of given that a little more thought because of how much or how little um, current current treatments are working.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would highly recommend EMDR. I think it's well worth looking into. Um, For sure. So before we wrap up, John, I want to know what uh, kind of a piece of advice or suggestion you would give someone if a listener right now is in a really tough situation themselves dealing with PTSD or depression, anxiety.
0: Well, Redefine how you view success. So, in other words, um, so sometimes um, when a major depressive episode hits, if you can make it to the couch, and that's as far as you make it, that's that's by definition success. So, I think we're awfully hard on ourselves, and I think that if you slice it and uh, and make it make these smaller successes uh, or embrace those smaller successes, then then uh, it, it helps out a lot,
1: right? Absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, John, I want to thank you very much. Thank you for all of the good, important work that you're putting out into the world right now with your blog and your advocacy, and mm-hmm. uh, and thank you for taking the time to be on the Depression Files. I really appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. Uh, just just before we go, I meant to mention something to you that I wanted to make as a highlight. Sure. Out of all the people, out of all the people that that I've helped peer to peer. I've yet to have one one guy come up, really. Out of the bunch. Yeah, so I thought that was where because we the focus is on men. Yeah. With your your uh, blog.
1: Yeah, so you haven't There's, had any men and, reaching out to
0: you. I've had them reach out, but they retract themselves really quickly and they're done. Right. Um, um that's not true of uh, of, of women. So, yeah. uh, the reason why I wanted to to bring that up was because. Uh, I think we are making terrific strides. I think that, I think that it's very much still a, still a very difficult pill for a lot of us to swallow. So yeah, I, I thank you for all your hard work that you're doing to, uh, to help alleviate that.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. Thank
1: you, John. Make sure you stay in touch and uh, stay healthy.
0: Yes, sir. Take care.
1: Thank you for listening to the depression files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, Please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.